I invite you, if you will, to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And follow as I read. We're just going to read the first uh, eight verses. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Would you pray with me and let us ask for God's help as we come to his word. Our Lord and our God, we come humbly into your presence. We do not come in our own stead, in our own persons, but we come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior and the friend of sinners. And we know very well that if we love you, if we love Jesus, it's only because you first loved us. And it is our prayer that indeed that we would love you more. We thank you for your own beloved son whom you offered up in our place to make propitiation for our sins that we might be reconciled to you, the greatest and the best of all beings. Lord, tonight we come, and on behalf of this church, we thank you for Heather Lacey, that her surgery went well today, and we pray for her as she recuperates. We pray that you will help her in the days and the weeks and months ahead. You would just pour out help to her and to her family. And Lord, we pray for Pastor Green this time away and pray that it would be profitable and uh, pray that you will richly bless him during his sabbatical. And Lord, now again, as we come to your word, we ask that you would give help by your spirit, that you would get glory to your name, that you would lift up the name of Jesus Christ, the Savior and the friend of sinners in whose name we pray tonight. Amen. In August, I ended my 42nd year at Bible Chapel, and I began year number 43. And I thought it would be good just to um, do a short series on the gospel. So I've been doing that uh, since the first part of September. And, and what a joy it has been to, to be able to do that, to speak about good news. We love good news, don't we? We don't hear much of it today. I was thankful this year to hear good news. I was going to be a grandpa, and that is wonderfully good news. 
But we are thankful for the message of the gospel, which indeed is good news, good news to those who've come to understand something about the bad news, that there is none righteous, no, not one. And we are thankful that God, in his grace and his mercy, has provided a savior who is mighty and he is able to save. And so it's been my joy for all these years to be able to preach the gospel. What a blessing that has been. If you'd asked me when I was 18 that I would be even here preaching, I would probably laughed at you, but God has given me the privilege to be able to do that. And uh, I don't know why me, I can think of many others, but would be far better. But for some reason, he has allowed me that privilege. And I'm thankful. And I wanted to speak on this passage, uh, particularly uh, verse 5 tonight. This coming Sunday is Reformation Sunday, and we're mindful of Martin Luther, who posted the 95 Theses on the door at the church at Wittenberg, which began what became known as the Protestant Reformation and the recovery of the gospel that had been lost in so many areas in Europe. And... Um, So I thought it would be good for us to look at this verse, and it's verse 5. And this verse to me is one of the most startling yet wonderful verses in all of the Bible. To him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. It is my contention that this indeed is one of the most startling verses in all of the Bible, and at the very same time, one of the most glorious verses in all of the Bible. What makes it so startling? When we think about something that's startling, it's, it's, it, it astounds us, it surprises us, we would even say it, it shocks us when we're startled by something. And I think that's an appropriate term as we think about this verse, that God, it says here, justifies the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. The terms that are used here, the word justify, is is used in the Bible often in a legal sense of what we might uh, hear a judge say to someone, that they are declared to be right in the eyes of the court. So it's a legal term. It would be a formal acquittal of someone that was in the courtroom. So to acquit is to be declared right in the eyes of the court. And it says that God justifies, and this is where it's startling, He justifies the ungodly. This word means impious, without reverence for God. It's not merely irreligious, but acting in direct violation of God's demands. Ungodly, ungod-like. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, he created them in his own image, in his own likeness, to be like him in many respects. Ungodly is to be unlike God. 
It is a word that is used in 2 Peter 2, 5, where it says that God spared the old world, did not spare the old world, but he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Men and women whom it says every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil always. And here, as we look at this statement, there might be this dissonance that we feel, and I, I think there should be, if maybe we're reading this for the first time. When we think about dissonance, it's the idea of things that don't go together. There's a discord. If you've ever been to an elementary band concert, one of their first concert, you hear a lot of dissonant sounds <laughs> when they are playing. And I remember one preacher talking about cerebral dissonance. There's this dissonance that we have in our minds, in our thoughts, at a passage like this. Here it appears that God is doing something that he forbid judges under the Mosaic law to do. For we read in uh, the book of Proverbs that... Um, that a judge, he who justifies the wicked and condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Someone that condemns somebody that's innocent or someone that lets off the hook, someone that should be judged, the wicked, and yet passes over them and does not carry out the law they're an abomination to the Lord. And uh, so we can sense this dissonance here because this is what God commanded of leaders under the Mosaic Covenant. And so there's a sense even of moral dissonance, discord in our thinking, how God would justify the ungodly when he calls the judges to not do that to condemn somebody that is just or to justify the wicked, that's an abomination to the Lord. And of course, when you talk to most people on the street, and as you would talk to them, and you would say, who will make it to heaven? Who will ultimately be justified and accepted in the presence of God? Well, they're going to tell you something like this. Well, people that have lived a good life, people that have endeavored to keep the Ten Commandments. I've heard that before. And interestingly enough, if you would ask those people, what are the Ten Commandments? They couldn't tell you what the Ten Commandments are, but that's what they're trusting in, that they're trying to keep the Ten Commandments. So there is this thought that, you know, I've not really done a lot of bad things, and I think in the end that God will accept me. I'm not an Adolf Hitler. I'm not a rapist. I'm not a child abuser or anything like that. And uh, I think in the end I'll make it. So in the minds of just people that you would talk to on the street, their idea is that those who will ultimately be accepted in the presence of God are people who are made a good stand. They've lived a pretty good life. And they're the ones that are going to receive a favorable verdict in the last day. And uh, so as we look at this, I think we can see why this verse could be startling 
when we first read it, that God justifies the ungodly. So it's important for us now to step back and to kind of see the context. And we'll see that this statement, in light of the context, becomes a very glorious, wonderful, amazing statement of what God does in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What makes this so glorious? Well, Paul's purpose, as he has begun the book of Romans, is to bring the whole world guilty and accountable before a holy God. So in chapters 1 through 3, Paul brings Jew and Gentile before the bar of God, and the declaration is given in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one, There is none that doeth good. There is none that seeketh after God. And then in chapter 3, in verse 19, he says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, No flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law comes the knowledge of what? Sin. A lot of people think, you know, they're pretty good. They they try to keep, you know, live a good moral life. But when you compare yourself with God's standard, you will always fall short. And what it reveals about you is not that you are righteous. If you're trusting in your works and what you're hoping to get you accepted uh, by before the presence of a holy God is your own works, your own efforts, your own deeds. No, the law is not going to show you that you are righteous. It's going to show you that you are a sinner, that you have fallen short of the glory of God. Psalm 130, verse 3. The psalmist writes and says this, Lord, if you should mark out iniquities, I could not stand before you. Have you come to know that about yourself? Lord, if you would make me to give an account of myself before you, there's no hope for me. I could not stand before you. I could not be accepted before you. Paul says this to the Galatians in Galatians 3.10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For as written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. If you summarize the law of God, it's two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. Would anyone dare raise their hand and say, done that 24-7? That's what Paul says, he must keep the law flawlessly. He must continue in all things. Who can say, I have loved my neighbor as myself 24-7? No one can. And so by the law comes the knowledge of sin. And if God only justifies those who have a perfect righteousness of their own, there are none that are going to be justified, are there? That will be an empty set because 
There is none righteous, no, not one. So now as we come to understand that and we come to grips with what Paul's saying here in chapters 1 to 3, we begin to see something of the beauty and the glory of what Paul says here in Romans 4, 5, that it is in the gospel, amazingly enough, that God justifies ungodly sinners. He justifies and declares them accepted before him in his sight. But what makes this possible? How can God do this? Because again, he told judges in the Old Testament, you are to not pervert and you're not to, you're not to condemn the righteous or you're not to, um, uh, call those who are guilty as being innocent. So how is it that God can justify the ungodly? Does God in some manner violate his own holy justice in order to justify the ungodly? I heard a story once that I appreciated. It was, it was about a chicken thief lived in the backwoods and he was stealing all of his neighbor's chickens. And um, he was arrested and he was taken to court and uh, he couldn't afford his own attorney, so one was appointed to him. And uh, this attorney was a pretty sharp attorney. And so he presented a case, the prosecution presented a case, and the jury uh, went into deliberation, they came out, and they handed the judgment to the judge, and the judge read the verdict. And he said, Mr. McCoy, you have been acquitted of all charges. And uh, he said to the judge, Judge, um, what does that word acquitted mean? It means that you're innocent and you're free to go and no charges uh, will be held against you. Oh, then he said, one more question. Does that mean that I have to give back the chickens? (laughs) Obviously, the man was guilty. Is this what God does? Does he kind of sweep our sin under the rug and just say, it's okay, there's no problem, I'm going to forgive you? That's not what God does. And this is why the gospel is good news. God doesn't sweep our sin under the rug. Exodus 34, 7 says, He will by no means clear the guilty. So there's a conundrum here, isn't there? How is this resolved? Well, it's in the gospel, isn't it? And I know I'm preaching to the choir, I think, here tonight. These are not new things to you. But... This is the good news of the gospel. We pick up in chapter 3, verse 21. Having brought the whole world guilty before the courtroom of God, Paul says, but now. The righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. 
for there is no difference, for all have sinned and for, fall short of the glory of God. Here is a righteousness that is brought into the picture, a righteousness of God that is apart from the law, but the law pointed to this righteousness that God would provide. In the Old Testament, there are pictures of this coming Redeemer and Savior who would come and provide everything that guilty sinners need. And one of those things is righteousness. Here is a righteousness that comes from God to guilty sinners. And it is in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he goes on here to speak about what Christ has done. Verse 24, we've all sinned and we've all fallen short, but being justified freely by his grace. The wonderful word in the Bible, isn't it? The unmerited favor of God, the blessing of God, his undeserved blessing, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is a a wonderful New Testament word, Old Testament as well. It's the release from bondage with the payment of a price. A slave who was in bondage, someone could pay a price and release them and redeem them out of bondage. This is what Christ has done for his people. Peter tells us he didn't redeem us with silver or gold, but he redeemed us with his own precious blood. There was a payment that was made for our sin so that we could go free, that we could truly be justified because a price has been paid. And this goes then to verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith, or it's received through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Here's another wonderful New Testament word. The word propitiation, it's only found probably four or five times in the Bible. One of my favorite verses is 1 John 4.10. Here in his love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and he sent his own son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word. And I, I'm ashamed to say I didn't, I read that for many, many years in my Christian life before I really understood what it was. But it's the idea of appeasing and turning away the wrath of God by making satisfaction for our sins. That Jesus Christ absorbed in himself the wrath of God made satisfaction for our sins. Our sins deserve the wrath and the punishment of God. We deserve to die. But Jesus, in, 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 in the person that he is, as the Son of God, was able himself to absorb the wrath of God in our place. He died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God so that God was pleased with what he did. 
he made satisfaction. God the Father was pleased with his sacrifice. He was raised again, as it says at the end of chapter uh, 4, verse 25, he was raised again for our justification. The court of heaven was pleased with this atoning sacrifice that was made by none other than the Son of God in the place of guilty sinners. And so here is the grounds by which guilty sinners, ungodly sinners, are justified in the sight of God. And I know you are aware that there is this double imputation that has taken place to everyone that has come to trust in Christ. To those who call upon the name of the Lord, their sins, as it were, have been have been addressed by Christ. He's died and he has paid the penalty in full. So Christ was made to be sin for us. But in this wonderful exchange, the believing sinner receives the perfect righteousness of Christ. It's an amazing thing. We have a righteousness that is not our own, a righteousness that has been given to us by the grace of God, and we are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Jesus died and paid for the penalty of our sins as if he had committed every sin that we had ever committed. And then when we are justified, we stand before God as if we had lived that perfect life that Jesus himself had lived. So as we think about this, we see at Calvary the answer to this conundrum. We see here the grace and the love and the mercy of God for sinners. But we also see his holy justice meted out, not on us, but in the person of our substitute, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was made to be sin for us, the one who knew no sin. And therefore, to everyone who like Abraham, believes and rests and trusts in the promises of God, they are given this statement that they are justified in the sight of God, and it is accounted to them for righteousness, to the one that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see at the end of chapter 3, Paul emphasizes over and over again, this is by faith. We receive it. We are... We are empty-handed beggars that come, and we receive the gift of a king. I've often said, and I'm sure I said it here before, I'm, as a preacher of the gospel, I'm just one beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. It's found in Jesus Christ. We come as we are with our sin, and Jesus Christ receives us. To everyone that comes to me, Jesus says, I receive them, I'll not turn them away. And so we come and we find forgiveness and we find a righteousness that's provided for us and God's holy demands have been satisfied because of Jesus Christ and what he has done. We're not saved by our works, but we are saved by works. It's just not our works. It's the works of another the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul says this in Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified before God. William Hendrickson defined justification. That's another big word. And he defined it this way. It's that gracious act of God whereby on the basis solely of Christ's accomplished mediatorial work, he declares the sinner just. And the latter accepts this benefit with a believing heart. We thank God for his grace and mercy. But notice in chapter 3, in verse 26, that this one who has made redemption and propitiation has done this to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be, notice this, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God remains just, and he justifies the believing sinner. God remains just and holy. And so this startling news that God justifies the ungodly is wonderful news to the believing sinner. And Paul makes it clear that it is all of his grace. This is something that Martin Luther came to understand. As he came to, came to understand more and more about the gospel, he came to see that it was all of his grace. It was not because of his works. It wasn't because of anything that he could do. It was because of the work of another, because of the work of Jesus Christ. For by grace we are saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, and it's not of works, lest any man should boast. Years ago, I bought a book uh, by Michael Horton, and although I probably can't remember a lot of things that were in that book, I remember the name of the title because it's what caught my attention, and it's called Putting Amazing Back into Grace. You know, as Christians, many of you here, I'm sure you've probably grown up in church and we've all heard a lot about grace. We've heard a lot about the gospel. We've heard about the work of Christ. But you know, we can, we can become so familiar with it that we take it for granted. John Newton wrote that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And sometimes we need to just stop and remind ourselves of the gospel, putting amazing back into grace. It is amazing grace. As Paul goes on in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 1, he begins to speak about some of the benefits and the blessings. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand 
And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul says we stand in grace. We stand in grace. That's our position as believers. We are accepted in the beloved one. Paul will say later, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We stand in in this grace, and this ought to give us confidence as we come to see and appreciate more and more the gospel. We stand in grace. We stand accepted in the court of heaven not because of who we are, but because of whose we are, if we be in Christ, accepted in the beloved one. And as we come to understand this, it ought to evoke in us humility. Paul says the mark of a true Christian is that they glory in Christ and they put no confidence in their flesh in themselves. All their boasting is in Jesus Christ and in who he is and what he has done. So Paul could say to the Corinthians, what do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why would you ever boast as if you had not? It is the free and sovereign grace of God that has brought us into union with Christ. And in the gospel, God has done two wonderful things for us. He has shown us something about our own hearts. And we agree with what Paul said in Romans 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. Lord, if you should mark out my sins, I could not stand before you. You know, we're blinded to that truth until the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see that. But he doesn't leave us there, thankfully. He shows us the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, a Savior for guilty sinners. This is the work of grace in the hearts of God's people and what he has done. And this grace leads us to what Paul says in Romans 12, having laid this foundation of the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ. These familiar verses, I think they're familiar to everyone here. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. We've we've received much mercy, haven't we? Out of the fullness of Christ, we've received grace upon grace. He's not dealt with us according to our sins. He's not rewarded us according to our iniquities. So I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is its really only your reasonable service. <laughs> it only makes sense, doesn't it? If God would spare not his own son, that we would seek then to serve him with all of our heart 
that we would present ourselves as a living sacrifice to him and not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. And so as we come to understand this gospel, it should humble us, it should give us confidence, but it should also evoke in us a greater love to serve this one who has so loved us and given himself for us. And as we close tonight, um, maybe there's one here that doesn't know this Christ. I've never really thought about the seriousness of sin, and it is serious. The soul that sins shall surely die. But here is good news that in the gospel, God justifies ungodly people. This is good news whether you're in the pig pen or in the pew, that God justifies ungodly people through his son, Jesus Christ. And the invitation is given to you. Come to Jesus Christ. Come unto me, Jesus said, all who are weak and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Put your trust in this one, the only name given under heaven, whereby we can be saved. And as you put your trust in him, you will hear that declaration from heaven that God justifies the ungodly. So look to the lamb, look to Christ, and live in him. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you tonight for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who sat sat at table with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, and he ate with them. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came into this world to save sinners, to save the ungodly. And Lord, for those in Christ tonight, may, may our hearts be refreshed and encouraged in what you have done for us through your own beloved Son. And may we seek to serve him with all of our heart. For any that might be here tonight that are estranged from you, they're still like a sheep just going their own way. Might you be pleased by the preaching of your word, by your Holy Spirit, to draw them savingly to Jesus Christ, that tonight would be a night of salvation for them, and they would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as their own Savior and Lord. Lord, we ask that you will use your word to lift up, to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray and ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.